Welcome to Tales from the Dance Floor, a podcast exploring the lives and times of people from all walks of life who followed their passions and made careers out of DJing, producing, parties, dance culture, and the music industry. I'm Phil Morse from Digital DJ Tips. Let's get started. So my guest today is Simon Walsh, who is one of the classic behind-the-scenes people in this industry who nonetheless does an extremely important job, which is getting the music into your ear holes. And he's going to explain a bit more about how he does that. But, but So welcome, Simon, first. Hello. Hello there. It's good to have you here. And look, Simon, I want to tell you a story before we begin this. I want to break with podcast convention and tell you a story. I want to take you back to when I was in my mid-20s. So we're talking the mid-90s here. And I was a up-and-coming DJ with lots of gigs and lots of showing lots of promise. And every single morning, I'd walk from my house to the post office, come rain or shine, and go to the back door. And the very jealous postman, because everyone had... Everyone had decks and a toothbrush in those days in Manchester, where I'm from. The very jealous postman would hand over a massive pile of brown 12-inch envelopes, which contained vinyl. And there were two very big companies that my my adult memory uh, still can recall from those days that used to send me promo vinyl, which we'll talk a lot about as we continue. Uh, And the company that you, uh, I believe, founded or certainly were involved right in the very beginning with... um, which is Music House, uh, was one of them uh, with, your, with your DJ promo service called Hyperactive. And I remember you sent me probably thousands of tunes which shaped my, uh, my dance floor's um, musical tastes and knowledge and uh, you packed out my record collection as well. So as far as I'm concerned, Simon, you're a hero <laughs> and I'm extremely honoured to have you on the podcast and to, to talk about you and uh, how you got into all of this and how it's changed. There's so much we can talk about that 40 minutes is simply not going to be enough. So, so welcome. My, my pleasure, but um, I, my apologies to go to your postman for all those um, heavy bags that uh, he used to lug up your drive and the rest of it. So, I'm sure, sorry, Mr. Postman. I'm sure some of those tunes disappeared as well, but uh, I guess that was all part and parcel of, of how things used to be. So, Simon... You're going back to the, you're going back to the late 80s and the 90s and um, the peak of uh, dance music. Indeed. So, Simon, this is when you... We're getting into this yourself, so I think it would be a lovely place to start. With You can just kind of think back that far and tell me, explain to me, how you ended up founding a company, which um, we're going to talk about how the company developed and what you do now and all the changes, but which basically was getting, you know, hot dance vinyl into the hands, the grubby hands of DJs um, a long, long time ago, and it's in, in one way or form still doing it. How did you get into that? I've always been a music fan listening to music ever since I was 9, 10, 11 years old. I remember going to radio and road shows in the 70s, the early 70s. Then I started developing, listening to punk. Then I transferred to Northern Soul. And eventually, um, jazz funk, um, which went into disco. I then started DJing myself around 19, 18, 19 years old. Um, When I was 18, I went to New York for the first time. I went with a couple of uh, Northern Soul DJs, and during the day they would run around picking out all the warehouses for all the Northern Soul classics that they could find. And I remember going around the labels Casablanca, South Soul, Prelude, flagging 
uh, free promos and the rest of it. I tried to get into Studio 54 in 79, didn't get in, but I went a few years later. Um, and then came back and started DJing and just being a big disco club kind of, it was a height of, height of disco, uh, and just being a big disco fan. Um, uh, there's a club near to me in Leeds um, called The Warehouse. They had some New York DJs who used to come over. I used to go in at nine o'clock, sit next to the DJ booth and watch them until two o'clock, learning how they mixed. They would use two copies of records, run backwards and forwards, create their own version. I got to know one of the DJs who lived in New York. I then used to go and see him. He ran a record pool called For The Record, which was Julie Weinstein's um, record pool. So he would run the record pool, which was my first understanding of a DJ record pool, a mailing list, how it all worked. He had DJs like David Morales, Frankie Knuckles, Satoshi Tommy, and all those coming in, getting their records every week, filling in forms, blah, blah, blah. So that was kind of, oh, this whole new, this is how DJs do. They get free records. How does it all work? Then came back, um, continued DJing for a period of time. I also went to DJ in Bangkok for a, a stint just to see what it was like, came back. And then when I was back, I started, same as yourself, applying for UK mailing lists. In my days, it was Rush Release, which was the, the big one to get on, which was um, run by Ian, Nick and Joe. Um, and then also Fred Dove, who ran the WEA um, DJ um, mailing list. And in those days, you had to phone an answer machine and give your... Uh, reactions to an answer machine and if you sent me an album you had to do it track by track by track those days are long gone long gone um i continued djing for a few years and then late 80s one of the um mailing lists i was on a company called music enterprises i used to hassle the guy who ran it gives a job gives a job gives a job and after a couple of years he found out one time says you keep hassling me for a job I've got a job, but you have to move to London. Okay, I'll move to London. So I moved to London, started running his club promotion department from um, a little office in uh, London, which was the house of one of the Radio 1 DJs. So I got to know some of the Radio 1 DJs through that. I was doing servicing records, and I was also taking some of the acts that we worked out to the clubs as well. So... I could see and meet the DJs at the same time. Um, I've traveled up and down the country more times than I could think of, taking bands and acts and things, taking people like Betty Blue out when she was having big hits. Um, and then at one time, um, he kind of changed and went more into PR. So I thought, well, I want to continue doing club promotion. I love commercial dance music. I don't really understand fully the ultra, ultra, ultra cool, trendy kind of route. That's not what I know. So let's set up. So me and the next friend set up um, the first one out of Music House, which was Euro Solution, which was commercial, commercial. Um, and it was the mainstreams, under 18 clubs, high street kind of bars and clubs and things like that. And because nobody else was doing that kind of area, we we ran away with it. Um, 
band at the time. Take that, let loose, Danny Nogue, Michelle Gale, E17, all big, big, big pop acts. So we did that for a while, and then we wanted to get into doing more upfront dance music. So we opened a hyperactive department so to run alongside Euro Solution. So we could do the commercial and we could do the upfront as well. And then we were kind of doing it right across the board. That was the height of dance music. Um, labels throughout the areas like Perfecto, Extravaganza, Incentive, and Juno Beats, Sirius, Ministry Sound, as well as the big ones, um, Positiva, Manifesto. And at a project we're working, Paul Van Dyke, Ferry Corsten, Roger Sanchez, Tiesto, Ian Vandell, Black Legend, etc., 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 when dance music was at its super club power peak. Um, we also did, through your solution, I remember going to see a little five-piece band, always from Manchester, uh, a little gig. Ended up getting to know the manager, and then started working with them, doing PAs, Andre Teens, commercial clubs, the rest of it. They would call take that. So for six, eight, nine, ten months, I was Uncle Simon picking them up. They were coming to my house. And we'd just go off and do some under-18s. So that was kind of exciting for a while. And I, I saw how big commercial clubs, under-18s, worked for that era. So then we've got Euro Solution running, we've got Hyperactive running, and then we added an urban division called Soul Food. Um, so we could kind of encompass all the key kind of things, sales and music, that was people wanted. Wow, Simon, that is that's an incredible um, nine-minute resume of kind of an, an amazing 20 years. And I want, there's so many things I want to cover here. I want to cover underground versus commercial and, and your feelings about, about both of them. Of course, I want to cover for people who just don't know anything about, about this whole pushing music out there thing or what it is. Um, and, um, of course, you just kind of dropped the... Drop the fact that you were driving take that around to under 18s clubs when presumably they weren't so far past that age either and they went on to be one of they the were past they weren't past that age at all and it was as, as you watch as you watch how exploded and exploded to me it was no surprise as to what happened to them wow and so after six eight nine months i could the, the under 18 clubs where we would take them they were absolutely sold out and there was kids outside screaming, following, chasing the band, blah, 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 blah. So sounds, I could see it. It was big. Yeah, it sounds incredible. I can't wait to dig into it a bit more. But firstly, I want to talk about um, a couple of things. The first thing I want to talk about is just to make it clear to our uh, to our podcast listeners who, who have never been really, were, were never involved in the way this whole thing worked. I want to just make it clear that what used to happen was that people like you would have contact with the labels, but also contact with the DJs who had the dance floors um, uh, in front of them every week. And the idea was that you'd get the, the vinyl into their hands before it was released and they would play that vinyl and they would hopefully honestly react back to you as to how well it was going down. And this was to help the labels decide whether they had a hit on their hands, how many to press, because of course there are upfront costs that you don't get nowadays, uh, and just generally see what the buzz was around the, the material that they were sending out. And I just wanted to make that clear to people who are listening and thinking, what, what is this world? Uh, and we'll talk about how it's developed 
in in a minute. But you know, you mentioned that people had to phone an answering machine and leave their reactions. Um, which that's was, how it. That's how it used to be. I remember then, the fax and, machine. You used to send a piece of paper, and we had to fill it in, and we had to fax <laughs> them all back. I remember buying a really good fax machine that you could kind of you, you could there load you like like you load a printer, so you didn't have to sit and feed them all in. It just did it for you. Um, but and, uh, and you tell the DJs today how it used to be, and they don't believe you. No, no, no. But when you look at the era, the roster, the talent, the DJs, the hits that came from that era, the DJ was at, at the centre of it. So the labels would come to us, we've got a new single coming up by whatever, um, and it's our key is keeping that mailing list as tight and as upfront and as relevant as as we can get it. If we can hit five, six, seven hundred working DJs playing to big audiences, playing to the crowds, playing new music. That's what the labels wanted. We give the feedback and then go, all right, we need some more mixes or something. This this mix is working. And just as you said, you know what? We won't spend lots of money on marketing because we don't think this one's going to take off. So we'll move on to the next one or we'll just put it as a soft release and put it out and it might go on some uh, dance compilations or something like that so we'll get some money back. Um, but the feedback that we go back to the labels with is what they want. And as, as an independent, we live by our DJ database mailing list. Yeah, and it, we, it was a rite of passage to try and get on, on the mailing list that had the records that you wanted back then. Uh, and I remember I remember clearly, you know, the uh, the elation when you, when you managed to do so and then bubble to the top of their lists. So when they had only a certain number of things to send out, you'd get one of them. But anyway, Simon... Absolutely. You said something at the beginning of here, which some people would be like shaking their heads thinking, if only that were me. You said things like, hey, you know, I just went to New York and I was just kind of hassling the labels for promos. And then I DJed in Bangkok. And Simon, this all sounds pretty exotic. How did you at that age end up just kind of hanging out with DJs, going around the biggest record labels in New York, kind of blagging vinyl from them, DJing in Bangkok? What was it about your life that made any of this possible? People will say, and, and the sort of other, other people that I know, and it's like, well, how do you do that? How do you do that? And I just think if you know, if you want to make it happen, you find out how to make it happen. You find out and you just do it. Nobody else can really make it for you. If you want something so badly, whether it's sport, whether it's the music, whether it's whatever, whatever area, whatever you want to go into, you kind of find how to make it work for you. And it was just, that's just kind of the way I did it. I just hung around DJ boxes for a, for a while, just watching DJ, because that was my passion. That was my interest. And then when I went to New York, you know, 18-year-old, first time in New York, it's like, what is all this? And then it all starts to go, this is what, this is the area, this is what I want to do, I want to pursue, however, I don't know how, but I'll just make it, I'll just do it. So what you did you, up, you know, what, what were you destined to do, if you like? When, you, when, when your mum and dad were packing you off to school, what was the kind of, the kind of direction you would have gone in if, if this hadn't come into your life? I just said I wanted to work somewhere in music. I loved dance music. I loved clubs. And I just thought, how can I make this work for me? So at 20, 21 years old, I'm working in clubs. And that's kind of, I've never had a proper job since then. And that, and that was kind of it. And I just, 
three or four nights as a resident in one club for a year or so, and then another one and another one. Then you come to London, and it's like, well, I'm still DJing a little bit, but then I'm doing club promotion, which to me is, it's a passion, it's a love. I get to listen to dance music all day, every day. I get to go to clubs anytime I want. I phone the DJ, I want to come and see you. I just turn up at clubs with a bunch of records, go in, introduce myself, sign the DJ up to the mailing list. It's just, it's just something that I wanted to do, managed to do it, and have continued to do it for many years now. So, Simon, there's a few things I want to talk to you about um, regarding the, your longevity. You said you've been doing it for many years. Obviously, music, maybe not the music itself, but certainly everything about the industry has changed beyond recognition in the last 20 years. Digital has ushered in a whole new era. Uh, and you tell me, but I'm going to suspect you're not sending out promos with sheets to fax back anymore to DJs. Um, how does, how does the, the, the plugging and the promotion of new music work now in 2020 or 2019 2020 how's it you know what's the what's the what's the 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 standard now compared to how it was back then at the height of when people djs were getting vinyl through like yourselves um one year our postal bill was just short of half a million pounds wow that's and because in those days it was one 12 inch or a double pack and then the week later there'd be another double pack so those and the postman's and the rest of it carrying heavy bags of, of, of all that, you know, that's so changed now to digital files. That's it. But the crux of what we do is still having a tight, as tight mailing list as we can of DJs that we just check up on, we chase, we source by social media, we chase and track down. And again, just to try and have the best mailing list that we can of DJs who will support new music um, and who will give us feedback. You know, it's nobody sending out a thousand digital files and nobody's going to give us any feedback because the labels are going to go, well, how's it doing? Well, we don't know because nobody's bothering to send that. So it's trying to find that fine balance of DJs who continue to give us honest feedback. They're playing to good numbers week in, week out, residents, regular spots or something like that. And just try and have that feedback. We're, we're, we're the middle between the label and the DJ. We're the, we're the middle person. Sending out digital files is just... Uh, we're getting the music to the DJ. That's, that's kind of what we do. So, so let, me, let me, as a genuine fan of what you do and the way music's distributed, as a DJ myself, of course, although I don't DJ anywhere near as much as I used to, <laughs> uh, as, the, as the head of a, a reasonably large DJ school, but... Um, I'm um, fascinated by how how big your distribution is to start with. I mean, do you are you concentrating on the United Kingdom or do you now have DJs internationally? Because, of course, you don't have to worry about distribution via the mail anymore. So, you know, do you cover Ibiza? You know, what's your kind of geographical range of DJs? Primarily, it's the UK. We do have a lot of the international tastemakers that we service as well. Uh-huh. Um, through the summer months, um, June, July, August, and into September, we uh, do the key European resorts, Malia, Cabos, Croatia, Mykonos, Sunny Beach, Canaries, Benidorm. Um, and we actually go out to every one of those resorts. All the DJs are on the database, so they're getting digital files anyhow. But we go out to every one of the resorts, 
um, with a USB, with the tracks on as well, uh, put it in their hands, explain, run through the tracks, run through the labels, run through the projects, meet the DJs, spend time with them. So we'll go there for two or three nights in every resort and then come back again, then go out to another resort and come back again. So those are kind of vital um, for the big hits that's going to come out later in the year, later in the summer. The labels are trying to build up the, you know, the support for it. Years ago, when people used to go out and then they would come back and then go to the record shop and go, I heard this in the clubs and the rest of it, can I order it because it's not come out yet? Um, then it's people adding through Shazam and getting it that way. And now with the um, streaming playlist, they go in a club, they listen to it, they can Shazam it, they can download it, they can get it instantly. Um, but it's us still getting the music in front of, in the hands of the DJs. We can never make anybody play anything. We can ask, we can update, we can give them as much information as we can in terms of scats and socials and tour dates, press, TV, radio support. And we just hope that we, we can, you know, we can only give them so much information and hope that that's good enough for them to go, oh, okay, fine, I'll do that. It's just a fascinating game to hear how hands-on you still are. People have this impression that in the digital world, everything's done online, everyone logs in with a cup of coffee on a wooden table and a laptop open and, you know, there's some kind of portal that lets them do their job while they, you know, while they eat their avocado on toast and no one ever leaves the, uh, <laughs> no one ever leaves the kind of converted warehouse, shared office space where the cool shit happens. But there you are going out every single summer into the clubs with a USB stick in your hand and actually I think there's a real lesson here that doesn't matter about how, the, what the medium is, whether it's the good old postman or whether it's digital, that the the personal the personal thing is massively important. And do you find that? Do you think that's something that, that, that still differentiates what you do for the music industry from some of the online platforms? I think that's why we've been going over 25 years. And I think that's one of the reasons why we're still going is because we are still out there. We do care. We still chase and track down and instead of, I know that some people have mailing lists for European DJs, and I'll post it on We go out, visit them in, in person, put it in their hand, talk to them, add them to the UK database when, if they come back and they're working back here. It's just, it's that relationship that we have with them. They trust us and we trust them. And it's just an ongoing working relationship. You know, we work with them, they work with us. We, we need them and they need us. So, so many questions here, Simon. Um, the first thing I want to do is let you in on the the way that a lot of the people who follow this podcast and a lot, a lot of the people who take our DJ courses get their music, um, which is they they join a, a modern download pool, a, a, a BPM Supreme, a DJ City, a promo only. Absolutely. That, that kind of pool, and they pay their subscription yep. and they get access yep. they don't have to re they don't have to give any reaction some of them still Correct. have pay lip service to it but most of them don't even bother asking anymore i guess they know the number of downloads and that's about it and what you know where did those guys come from how did they fork away from what you do and what's your kind of view on how they they sit in in the industry um uh, from what i understand um there's no proof that they're actually djing anywhere there's no proof as to how many nights as their audience. They could be a bedroom DJ, but they just want to get lots of free new music or next to nothing. 
So that's kind of the difference between what they do and what we do. We know our DJs. We go and chase them. If something applies for us, and we'll look at them, where you're playing, what sort of music you're playing, give us charts. I'm doing one night, you know, one, one night a month in a little backstreet bar or something, then you're kind of not really relevant. But one of these download sites, they'll sign them up because they get cash out of it. Yeah. So, so my question, I guess, is, is there, room, is there room for that? Is that also helping the music industry? Again, in your view, um, is that something that, that also helps to push tunes out there? You know, a lot of these labels are servicing, sorry, a lot of these sites are servicing the kind of music that I guess wouldn't have the budget behind it to, to hire someone like you anyway to push it. But uh, I'm interested to know your, your view on it. It started off as a frustration, and then because, uh, from what, again, I understand, I'm not sure how legal they are in terms of do they pay all the um, legalities, does the label get paid, does the artist get paid, I don't know. Um, they exist, they're out there, we, uh, we keep an eye on them, what they're doing, but the labels still come back to us because we give them feedback, they know that our database of the DJs that we're hitting are the ones that they want. They want to know is X playing it and what did he think about it? What did he say? Yeah. And it's that common as opposed to anybody can sign up for one of these sites and there's no checks goes on. There's no feedback really. There's no kind of, there's no middleman. It's just, you know, it's just another way of just getting music out there. Yeah. There's There's a lot of mashups. There's a lot of bootlegs out there. Which kind of confuses some labels' marketing plots. It's like, well, uh, I wish that they hadn't done that. It's kind of co- causing confusion, and it's it's just you know anybody can sign up to these. Yeah, and I, I it's true, it's true. I, I don't I don't think uh, anyone denies that the the barrier to entry is certainly quite low on, on on some of these services. And it also, you know, we need to bear in mind what you said, which is very interesting, really, when you look at it this way that a lot of the, your job's kind of done when that track is pumping out over the dance floor because nowadays someone can just hold their phone up and immediately add it to their Apple Music or Spotify playlist. And hey, there you go. They, you know, the, old, the old kind of going to the record shop, buying it thing has gone, in, gone entirely. Um, it's just your job to get it straight into the, into the ear holes and that's kind of, that's kind of it. And the, the tune kind of flies or not from there. It, 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 it's keeping that reign of who we send it to, knowing that they're as good a testing ground um, that a label can find. If, for example, you know, positive, if they send out, they have a new release coming up, it's like, well, we could send it out and DJ City, whoever else, these other download sites are available, um, put it up there. We don't know who's going to get it, who's playing it, who's not playing it, what feedback. If they come to us, they know who's going to get it. They will get feedback. They will get honest feedback. Again, 25 plus years of doing this, they trust us. They trust us to do what they want us to do. And it's that relationship that we have with them that makes them come back and come back and come back. Yeah, so you're in the, you're in the relationship game and you're also in the intelligence game, the, the uh, yes, yes. market intelligence. So, Simon, I want to move away from the, 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 um, the nuts and bolts of how music promotion works, and there's a lot more we could talk about. I'd love to talk to you a bit about radio plugging. Um, but first, I just want to talk to you about kind of your life, your last 20, 30-odd years doing this. Like you say, never, never really had a, in inverted commas, proper job because no one in music feels they've got a proper job, right? <laughs> Um, Correct. Yeah. And um, 
you know, how's it been? What, what, what do you feel the sacrifices you've had to make to have this life have been? Um, what would you have changed if you could look back? Um, what's, you know, what, what has surprised you? Just give us a bit of an insight into, into what a whole adult life doing this has kind of been like for you. Kind of, as well as doing this, if you can call it Monday to Friday, 95, whatever, um, and as an extension of when I started taking acts out on the road, doing visiting clubs, doing PAs, and I hooked up with some of the radio and DJs 20 odd years ago. I started tour managing um, some of the radio and DJs. I did some of the radio and road shows. I have always kind of done tour managing for DJs. And it's, for me, it's good because I get to visit 40, 50 venues a year. I get to see who's playing what. I get to mince up with old DJs. I get paid for it. That's always a bonus. But it's me. It's every weekend I'm out somewhere at some club, some venue or other. Um, just it's, it's a continuation of, and kind of the labels know that I'm doing it. They know that I'm still out in clubs. Um, and it's it's just a kind of, it's a continuation of. At the moment, I'm a tour manager. I've tour managed uh, Radio One DJ Scott Mills for the last. 15 years. I worked with Chris Stark. Over the years, I've worked with people from Greg James, Simon Mayo, Dave Pierce, Animatronic from... It's something I've always done. I do it well. But for me, it's a double-edged sword. I can go out and see what's going on in the clubs all over the country and come back with feedback. I've seen how systems have changed from turntables to CD players. Now everything's been playing off a controller and just how formats have changed and, and actually talk to resident DJs, to DJs. Some I would add to the database, the mailing list, because we want them. Others I would go, I wouldn't want you on the mailing list because you're not suitable. So it, it, it is a continuation of that as well. So um, I guess my question is more, more based around, do you ever stop and think, you know, this, is, this has become my absolute life. Uh, I don't want to do anything else. Or do you think, oh, I wonder what if... Um, I'm just one. Just you know, people are fascinated by what it feels like to have done something that they couldn't have predicted, really, um, and it suddenly turned into a whole lifetime. I could never have imagined at twenty twenty two that I would still be doing this. A, doing it. I've been doing it so many years later, mm. and looking after and working the projects that we work, the actual work, the labels we work. I, 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 never, never could have imagined that at all. Just like, you know, wow. And every day it's kind of a pinch because it's still going on. We get to the end of every year and it's like, wow. How, I don't think why and how, but I just look back and go, because we, nobody else does what we do. We're a very important part. To put a single out, I look at it as pieces of a jigsaw. And if all the pieces are kind of there at the same time, you've got a good chance of, delivering something and we're a big piece of that jigsaw puzzle and as long as we deliver honestly that's our job that's so you're, you're obviously just very very proud of becoming a, a um a pivotal part of the way music is released and uh, and hits are made in the uk so listen i've got to come back to uh, the commercial side of what you do because you're very much a commercial music person you're in love with fascinated with and very good at making massive hits and working with the biggest acts you mentioned touring with Take That before they were 
uh, well, as they were becoming famous. Um, any yeah. any story or stories you'd like to share from those early days that people might not have heard that uh, that happened as they were kind of rising to fame? Just they were just five young, excitable boys, passionate about what they were doing, loved what, what loved what they were doing, and just fun to be in sitting in the vehicle with for six, seven hours as you as you drive to Hull to do an under eighteens club. They would all be playing their little. Um, PlayStation, what was it in those days? It wasn't a PlayStation, it was a little... Oh, I don't know, I, never, I was never into it. The, the little handheld Yeah, thing. the little Nintendos or something. So, something that, that's, that was kind of what they were doing. And they were just, they loved what they were doing. And we'd, we'd drive to Hull, and then drive to Manchester, and then go to somewhere else, and then come back up. And it was just, it was just an exciting time for pop music. Uh, the boy bands that was just starting, and it, it was the UK boy bands... The Americans had their new kids on the block, and then it was kind of, we had ours, take that, Let Loose were big at, big at the time, Eminem were big at the time, all these new boy bands, pop music, commercial music, was just exploding everywhere. And you're still very much in love with that whole commercial scene. You were talking about your uh, Euro Solution promotions uh, arm and Euro Solution resorts. I want to talk about... Um, that side of things because people think that music comes from kind of clubs and a cool buzz on the underground and the right bloggers writing about it and then the hits kind of emerge you know almost randomly from from the underground but that's not really how it is is it there's a whole there's a whole squarely commercial scene based as you say around massive clubs in in resorts which are not Ibiza um, and that that kind of where most people end up going on their holidays and having their couple of weeks off is kind of a, a springboard for some of the biggest hits of the year, kind of year in, year out, and has been for a long, long time. And I wanted to talk to you about uh, about that kind of side of the music industry that certainly I think some some bedroom DJs wouldn't really understand that even that it was there or that there was a system there for for that to happen. Um, but you can give us some insights into that. So what other places, you know, you've talked about the big European resorts. Is it kind of like playlists in gyms? Is it um, schools? What, you know, what, what kind of, is it, is it football stadiums? Where, where do you try and get these massive tunes heard so that they become hits? We, a couple of years ago, we, we tested out and we're still, we, we dipped our toe in the, um, in the water or in, or in the snow, as, as they say. Uh, we tried doing this, some of the ski resorts um, a couple of years ago. Um, but, we found that there are eight, there are so many um, where the age group of clubbing people go um, to try and cover everywhere at one go. There isn't an Ibiza in the skiing world. There isn't a Magaluf of the skiing world. There isn't a Kavos of the skiing world. It's, you know, there's lots and lots. There's 30, 40 popular destinations, but they don't have the big party scene that the summer resorts have. Also, because it gets dark later, uh, the Afterpiste, um activities hasn't kind of delivered any big crossover hit records yet apart from if you call dj up to from many years ago but there's no big there's no big djs really there's a couple of festivals snowboarding festival but there's no big amnesia kind of thing in any of the ski resorts so it's something we're still looking at still testing taste you know looking to add djs and do it but that, i mean that is another big area for you know, for, for dance music, people go clubbing. You mentioned um, we also have another 
um, area that we do is the football stadiums, um, sports gyms, rugby stadiums, ice hockey, basketball. Um, and again, it's, wherever somebody will play some music and give us feedback and we know that they'll play it, then, then great. If we're working, say, a new Little Mix single, which has just come in today, we can send it out and we know that we can get some of the sports stadiums will play it straight away. And if out of an audience of a crowd, 20,000, 30,000 at a match, if 15, 20 end up adding to playlists or Shazamming it or whatever, it's all little bits that will all add to the big pot, to the big picture. So your, your interest is very much in getting the feedback from people who play the music. And so, therefore, I guess you're not particularly interested or involved in trying to get tracks onto Spotify playlists and stuff like that, because I guess there's no feedback loop there. It's just kind of like send them and hope, right? At the moment, it's not so... We're very aware of the whole streaming activity and we do try and cover some of them. Um, the key playlists, but it's a very different kind of area and it's still relatively new. Spotify are not fans of having independent pluggers um, going in, meeting them, playing something to add, like a radio station will, like you really want, and meet, meet up producers and get some feedback or something like that. They're living in their analytical world. And it, will, it will grow organically by itself. And they have deals with the majors, Sony, um, Universal. So for independent, it doesn't really work. But we add the playlist stats to the marketing notes that we send out to the DJs. Okay. So listen, um, the other thing, of course, that I wanted to talk to you about uh, was, was radio plugging. Because... It's one of the things that we teach here. Uh, one of the things that will quite often happen uh, when you have got a hit on your hands that, that uh, a plugger will be will be um, hired to help try and get that, that hit onto the radio stations. And of course, anyone who's got any kind of um, fascination with the music industry will have read back to the halcyon days of pluggers, if you like, and the, the payola times of, of many decades ago and the kind of the good old days the infamy around being a you know the, the glamour the, good and inf- old days. the glamour and infamy around the record <laughs> the, the, the plugging days but um i want to know what a modern uh radio plugger does and um what difference it can make to a to a track that's been signed by a label if someone who knows what they're doing kind of gets behind it. And you, there can't be a better person to talk to this about than you as you've had such contact with Radio 1 being the biggest radio station in the United Kingdom for pop music for our international listeners when you've mentioned it. So tell us about, you know, the, the art of radio plugging. It is kind of another arm to relationships. Um, taking a piece of music that nobody's ever heard before and you can start by trying to get some specialist plays and some of the specialist shows, Dan shows, Andy Mack, Danny Howard, Mr. Jam, Dan Santhams, uh, Kiss play, Kiss Weekends. I try and build up spot plays to start with and there's lots of other um, specialist Dan shows and podcasts as well that are very, very, very important as well. Uh, I'm trying to build up from this, from nothing to try and get some Okay, we've got some plays this weekend. Let's build up in it again the following week. And individual producers, relationships, can we play and feed them back? With it, it's a relationship again business. They come to us for honesty. We give them honest feedback. And if one week you get fifteen plays across the radius lands, and the following week you get twenty-five plays, then you get forty plays, then you get, and it just builds and builds and builds. 
And at, then at some point, he's like, well, let's try and get it on playlist, on daytime playlist, and cross it over. So again, you get, uh, the producers during the day are very different to the specialist ones. And again, you can go in, present your track, sit down, a relationship with them. Um, this is how it's done the last week. Would you be interested? You know, could we get it as a, a track of the week, maybe? Could we get it as a spot play somewhere? And just try and build and build and build. Um, one of the uh, tracks that we did recently, uh, the Vice track, um, that took about eight, nine, ten months from it first in Canada, the office, to being on the radio on any different radio on A-list. The Vice track, Feel My Needs, on Tour Room. Okay, awesome. Yeah, we remember that. It was a, it was a great track. So that took that long. It took eight to nine months to get that. To get it that. took it specialist plays, specialist plays, build up slowly, more stations, more support, more support. Into daytime, we'll look at it again. We'll look at it again. We'll keep going. And then eventually, C-list, B-list, and A-list. So, so for, again, for people who don't know, the A-list is the kind of tracks on, on heavy rotation. B-list are played a little bit less frequently, and C-list kind of intermittently, right? Yes. So one thing people will be interested in, Simon, is podcasts, because you mentioned that it's very important to get your tracks onto podcasts, which, of course, are kind of the new radio, aren't they? But people often worry about the legality of doing a music podcast because they don't know if they're allowed to. And I'm talking about DJs who maybe aren't big DJs and maybe aren't on the radar of people like you. So what is the situation with podcasting? Do you have any insight into that? When is it legal to play tracks and when isn't when isn't it? I think it's kind of similar to these other download sites that's, that's out there. Uh, labels, artists, acts would love their tracks to be featured on whether it's Tiestos, whether it be Jonas Blues, yeah. whether it be above and beyond. They would just in the same way as it's a big audience, it's 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 proper legal and that's what they want. That's what they would really want. Uh, anybody can do a, a SoundCloud, a MixCloud and put things on there. How it's monetized legally I actually don't know the full workings of it. Yeah. But we kind of concentrate on the bigger, well-known acts and their podcasts um, in a similar way to... It's like a specialist dance show. So, it's so, a similar so, sort of thing, and let, it's a relationship. You know, let me ask your opinion on this, because people will, will, be, it will be... Your opinion will carry weight. If someone is a genuine fan of a scene, of a you know, an emerging genre or of a, um, a movement in music or something, and they, they think it's underrepresented and they put a little podcast together and they talk to the labels and they talk to the artists and they're going to the clubs and they're kind of putting this show together every week. Their heart's in the right place there, right? Even though they might not be huge. Do you think that there's kind of tolerance of that kind of thing out there and that maybe these people will one day grow to be the next big podcast that you guys might have uh, might have an interest in and do you think that's different to someone who's just blatantly packing an hour with big hits hoping that someone will I don't know that something will come back to them uh, is there a difference in you know because there's such a grey area now in, in, in digital music and, di- and digital music distribution isn't there it's so technology's moved quicker than, than, than the law if you like but do you see kind of people trying hardest and doing good stuff who maybe are going a bit under the radar and, um, and do you kind of think well well, actually, that's all right. It's kind of, as you said at the beginning of that, if their heart is in the right place, they mean well, they want to do well, and you hope that eventually it does rise and they end up doing well. And they started off with the best of intentions. If it's a little bit great to start with, but if they get there in the end, that's all good. At this digital world we live in, it's kind of frustrating 
for everybody to get monetized as they should do. Mm. If somebody's playing it, you know, if an artist has spent time nurturing, spending time, years, you know, getting his craft together, and then it puts his music out and everybody just takes it for nothing, it kind of it's frustrating. It is, it is, isn't it? And we, we see it from every angle. Everybody, absolutely. But then, you know, yes, there is no, well, if I put it on my podcast, it's 50,000 reach. So well, I'm not paying for it, but you're going to get some promotion out. It, it's kind of, it's where's the fine balance of, and you said it, you know, if everybody's intentions and their heart's in the right place, you hope that eventually it will come, it, yeah. it will sort itself out. It will do. There's a lot of people out there that will just, I, I can look at Mixcloud, I can look at Soundcloud, and there's so much music out there, and I don't know who's getting correctly paid for, for the work they've done. No. If, if, if anybody, I, I, yeah, I don't. There is, there's but a I lot of interesting, every, everybody should be paid. There's a lot of interesting work going on in that area at the moment with digital fingerprinting and automatic rights in the background and stuff, which is beyond the scope of our chat, of course, but it's good to, to know that that is happening. But I wanted to, I've got some, so I, I did say we'd run out of time. I've got so many um, questions left. I want to just quick fire a few at you. Um, what uh, is your DJing like nowadays? Do you still get a chance to DJ nowadays? Is it kind of once a year you break the decks out? What's the, how is it now? Um, I haven't done that for a while. Every, I mean, I, I'm out with Scott Mills, you know, a bunch of gigs a, a year. Um, if he wants to pop off for 10, 15 minutes and go and talk to people in the crowd, I'll jump in. But it's not DJing as DJing as such. And I just, not, uh, not I've left it behind kind of thing, but um, it, it, it's a passion that other people, unless somebody else have the passion for it. I haven't got the time or the passion to go out and find a club now and to do it regular on a regular kind of basis and that's fair enough it's totally understandable of course um and i want you to think back now a long way to your kind of formative years and i want you to just try and try and hone in on one pivotal dance floor moment one nightclub one dance floor one place you might have been one record that might have been playing where kind of everything changed for you where you suddenly thought Wow, music. Can you think of a, you know, just maybe one of many, but just share a story with us where music really hit you hard when you were, when you were out there on a dance floor somewhere? I think one of the times was my first trip to New York, and I didn't get to Studio 54, so I went to another club called New York, New York. I went in there, and it was smart and everything, and there was a hologram laser of of a cowboy on a horse chasing an Indian through this smoke-filled club in New York with these pounding beats in the background. And I just went, what is this world? I just <laughs> want to be part of it. I just want, I, just, I, I love this. I love this. Then going to see Larry the Van playing at Paradise Garage and going, he's not a good mixer. He's not very good. Hmm, okay. Um, I used to have a, a mix go out on Radio 1, um, on the Mark Goodyear show, uh, on his dry time show, Radio 1, in the mid-90s, we used to do four days a week, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, which led to a series um, called In The Mix 96, um, series of CDs, um, which went out to Virgin, which we sold over a million copies of that. Um, there's just so many things, I just pinch myself and go, did this actually kind of happen? Yes, it did. And I'm still here. Well, that's, that seems to me to be a fantastic place to, to thank you very much for your time, Simon. It's, been, it's just been awesome picking your brain and finding out about what was going on in the background when 
basically I was just getting lots of great tunes, letting you know what I thought about them and playing them to my to my packed dance floors every week back at the height of dance music in the 90s. But you've filled in a, a lot of what happened in your life and in your company before and after that. For that, I thank you. And some great moments as well that you shared today. And so, if there are any of, any of your DJs who would like to come to us to be added to the database, the mailing list, please do so. Please, you get the address by yourself for... We will put a link. We'll put a link in the in the show notes uh, so that they can find that. If you're a bona fide working DJ, playing to a good audience, and will support new music, come come to us, please. Well, there you go, people. You shouldn't need more of a uh, of a prompt than that from from the man at the top of the company servicing some of the biggest biggest records uh, in the United Kingdom uh, year in year out for a couple of decades. Simon, thank you very very much for your time today. Um, we'll My talk. Absolute a- pleasure. We will talk again soon. I'm sure. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you.